From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul trek, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello and welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zuma Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM. All of you checking us out on one of our affiliate stations across North America. The podcast, of course, don't forget the new one, Conspiracy Unlimited. Drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, those of you who normally check us out on the, the the YouTube channel, just a programming note: no live YouTube YouTube stream tonight. Uh, that will resume next week. Uh, and unfortunately, just due to the icy road conditions, I'm doing the program from home. Albert and Ryan are staying home where it's safe. So again, no YouTube stream uh, tonight, but we will post this show on the YouTube channel within the next several days, and we will resume the live YouTube stream next week. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Well, it is that time of the month when we get a a visit from one of our faves here, a dear friend of the program, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal researcher, investigator, the author of over 65 books, nine of them major encyclopedic works, and she has a brand new one out, co-authored with the uh, travel psychologist Michael Bryan, and this one is called The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. Rosemary, welcome once again. How are things in snowy Connecticut? Not much different than up there uh, for you, Richard. We've had snow, ice, rain. The roads have been messy. Joe and I are staying in this weekend. (laughs) Same here. Yeah, this is the kind of winter I remember as a kid. Just lots and lots of snow. And it seems to me we've sort of gotten off easy over the last several years. But this is more like the ones I remember. I would agree for New England here in Connecticut. uh, We usually get a fair amount of snow and it has been light for several years, and now this is more like what I would consider normal. You know, I've been in the East Coast area for, oh gosh, about 30 years now, and I would say this is a typical winter. I like it, actually. I like lots of snow. Now, you're staying put, I'm staying put, but this is a book about travel and the experience, the paranormal experiences that people have while traveling. Now, this is sort of the second in this theme, correct? You wrote one previously about this same sort of thing. Yes, our first book was called The Road to Strange. That's sort of the series title that we're giving it, and it was Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. And it was about how travel in general just opens us up to extraordinary experiences of all kinds. Now, for the second book, not everyone is actually on a trip when they have their UFO experience. We're extending travel into an interdimensional area because some people are right in their own backyards when they have an amazing sighting of a ship or a close encounter uh, with something or they have a, a bedroom visitation. Both Michael Bryan and I have been involved in ufology for a long time. In fact, Michael was so heavily involved in MUFON for a good number of years that they started calling him the MUFON ambassador. And uh, in his travels around the world collecting unusual stories from people, a good number of them fell into the UFO and alien category. Now, the book is divided into four 
main sections. I know what I saw, mystery lights and craft, alien encounters, and then high strangeness. Just walk me through quickly each category with a brief explanation. I know what I saw is very important because this involves sightings. It could be um, mystery lights in the sky, close encounters with craft, and witnesses find that they're often dismissed and ridiculed. And the mantra in ufology has become for years, I know what I saw. You know, it, it was not fog. We have one story from New Zealand, an amazing UFO encounter with a film crew in an airplane. And the official explanation was, which is captured on film, and the official explanation was, oh, it was reflected squid boat lights off clouds. You know, just the crazy explanations that debunkers come up with. So this is a very important category because so many things fall into that. The mystery lights and crafts, that's a very common experience where people are just out, they're out in the countryside or driving or they're out in their backyard enjoying the night sky, and suddenly something that doesn't seem to be of Earth origin intrudes upon them. In alien encounters, we advance to uh, actual encounters with non-human beings, beings who come in craft and get out, have some sort of engagement with people, or people see beings inside of craft, or they're visited in their bedrooms. We have some really scary stories of abductions, and we also have stories of people who say that their encounters have been beneficial and that they're participating in some sort of hybrid program that's going to be for the benefit of everyone. And then we just really had to include high strangeness, which is all the weird things that seem to go along with UFOs and and aliens, you know, um, missing time, portals that seem to open into other realities, men in black, the strange entities that visit people and threaten them when they've had encounters. And uh, all of these things are part of the big synergistic picture of what happens to people when they come in contact with something that does not seem to be earthly. One of the interesting themes, particularly in the I Know What I Saw section of the book, is the why me factor. People were wondering why they were chosen to see a particular craft, and almost as if there was an intelligence being directed at them. They may not have seen it, but they felt it. And one such case actually leads off the book from a a woman by the name of Anita Sowles, remembering a case over 50 years ago in the town of Los Molinos, California. Tell me about that. Well, it was... A family, they had a dairy farm, and one night they saw a craft, not real close to the farm, but about a quarter of a mile away. And uh, Anita's brothers took off. They wanted to find out what was going on. The family reacted in different ways. She had a sister. She and her sister went out and actually saw the craft, and Anita stood practically right under it. It was absolutely immense because it did come very close. Her father didn't want anything to do with it. He sat at the dining room table continuing to eat his dinner. Oh, it must just be a government thing. I'm not going to think about it. And her mother was too scared to even contemplate it. So Anita gets a very close look at this craft and observes its size. It's round. It's got rotation to it. There are lights around the edges and colors. And it's interesting that you said the why me factor. And in fact, we we do have that. It's like, why me? Why was I singled out? This is a theme that crops up over and over again, where people feel that somehow the experience was meant for them, or they noticed something, and whatever intelligence was behind it noticed them noticing and responded in kind. And 
as the reader goes through the book, this theme crops up over and over again. Why did I have this experience? So for Anita, it was really a life-changing experience. This is another theme that you will find throughout the book as well, that even with just a sighting of a craft, it doesn't have to be like a close encounter face-to-face with alien beings. It can change your life forever about what is out there. People often feel very insignificant, very powerless, that there's something far greater, more intelligent than they are, and that these intelligences or beings have the ability to find them whenever and wherever they want. And in her case, she went to bed every night filled with fear and anxiety that this craft was going to return, perhaps take her. Uh, and it's like she prayed every night, if you come and take me, please leave my family alone. How long did that last? Well, it lasted for a good number of years, and even after the major anxiety, it's almost like post-traumatic stress syndrome, Uh, even after the main anxiety has subsided, it's always there in the back of somebody's mind that the world isn't quite the same as it was before they had their experience, and some people feel their safety zones, you know, kind of violated. Now, in Anita's case, as far as we know from her account, Nothing like that ever happened to her again, but she was always considering the possibility that it might, or since they seemed to know where she was, something else might happen. You know, they might come back and she might have a different kind of encounter. And she also found that other people weren't interested. This is a theme, especially in the section, I know what I saw. They try to talk to their family members. Their family members don't want to talk about it, or they deny it or shrug it off as you know, non-UFO. Friends just kind of laugh. And Anita had a very good friend who said, oh, yeah, you're really into that stuff, aren't you? Ha ha. And so the witness then, the experiencer, feels totally minimized and isolated. And that's a very scary spot for a lot of these people to be in. For sure. There's also a possible element here of missing time. Her two brothers took off in the van in hot pursuit of this craft, or these craft, I think she said there were five, and I don't think they caught up with them, but the she calculated the trip there and back should have taken a certain amount of time. They were out much further, so she suspects there may have been some missing time. And there might very well have been. I think it was about 45 minutes or so that were unaccounted for, and nobody wanted to go down that road, so to speak, to consider what might have happened. Now, we have another story later on in the book where... Four hours of missing time occurred to a couple of sisters, and one of them underwent uh, regression and discovered that quite a horrific abduction had taken place. So people have just kind of a natural blockage, and it's understandable. It's like, well, something weird happened, but I don't want to know anymore, because if I learn what really happened, then I'm not sure I can deal with it. And uh, that was the case here. Now, your co-author on this project and the one previous, Michael O'Brien, also known as the travel psychologist, as a psychologist, how does perhaps his interviewing skills, what does he bring to the table in terms of his discipline and his interviewing skills when he's talking to some of these witnesses? I don't know who interviewed who in these cases. Well, almost all of the accounts in the book are from Michael's files, his world travels and his encounters with people where he has interviewed them about their travel experiences of all kinds, including ordinary experiences as well as extraordinary. 
And uh, as a psychologist, you know, he's looking for how are you engaged in this experience? What was the effect on you? How did you accept, deny, integrate? And uh, one of the things that I brought to the table with all of these stories is sort of an analysis commentary at, at the end, and we did this in the other Road to Strange book too, where we put the story into context with other similar stories and classic cases from ufology. How does this compare to what's already out there in the known literature? And I, I think that perspective really helps the reader, especially the reader who's new to this territory, navigate through this territory, this uncharted territory that clearly indicates that human beings are experiencing intelligences from other origins. All right, Rosemary, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll dial back all the way to 1931 and Central Texas. This is a, uh, a tragic story of a young boy who was actually beaten for telling his parents about a mystery light he saw in the sky. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, co-author of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. We're going the full hour. And her new book, in which she co-authors with Michael Bryan, is The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. Talk about being punished. We, we mentioned that earlier. Being punished or at least being dismissed, you know, for talking about UFOs or marginalized. But here we have a very tragic case of a young boy who's actually beaten. Tell me about T.L. Murdoch. Well, he lived on a cotton farm in Texas, and uh, this event actually took place in 1931. It was many years later by the time Mr. Murdoch really told his story for the first time because of the way he was treated by his only family members. But it was a spring day. He was about four and a half years old. And we really can't discount experiences from children because they have legitimate experiences just like adults do. But he's outside just enjoying the day, and he sees something up in the sky that is very unusual. He sees this round, uh, he described it as a round, shiny silver object, and uh, it was sort of hidden by the clouds, and then it's unhidden by the clouds, but it's clearly something that's not an airplane. He said it remained stationary, and he said it looked to him like a big shiny eye that was just staring down at him. So he said he, you know, even at four and a half years old, he knew that it was not an airplane. And how is it just staying fixed in the sky? So, you know, he went home and first he told his mother. And what did she do? She backhanded him for telling a lie. And this just absolutely amazed him. And it was quite a blow. And... um she said that, you know, it was just his imagination, and then she criticized him for his dirty clothes, being outside. In other words, she just uh, didn't listen to him and just assumed he was making something up. So uh, then he, he thought that uh, maybe his father would listen. And uh, his father got out the old-fashioned, um, you know, belt form of discipline that was very common back then and um, gave him a beating for lying. And he said it was really a brutal lesson that 
uh, at that very young age that you could be punished for telling the truth? I wonder, uh, I shudder to think about how many instances, you know, that occurred, uh, and that, that people were so traumatized, uh, the, ret- the retribution for telling their parents or someone else what they saw, they were beaten, uh, in return. How many, how many lives were utterly, you know, destroyed because of that? Uh, it's it's hard to fathom, but I'm sure it uh, it uh, has happened many times over. And uh, you know, we have other uh, comments from experiencers in the book uh, telling their stories about how they were ridiculed, and uh, it leaves um, quite quite a stigma on people, especially if their story leaks out in the public, gets into the media. And then they've got uh, the general public jumping on them as well. And this is a very peculiar condition here in, in um, well, it's not just ufology, Richard. We see it in the paranormal as well, that uh, on one hand, um, there, there's a clamor for, uh, if this stuff is out there, let's see the evidence. Let's hear it from the witnesses. And then when witnesses come forward, what happens to them? Uh, they're just leaped upon and ridiculed and, and uh, shredded uh, for their credibility. They're made fun of. They're called hicks. They're delusional. They're drunk, uh, liars, whatever. Uh, and it's no wonder that uh, people often remain quiet about their experiences. Well, if you're not traumatized by the sighting or some encounter, uh, you end up being traumatized by the either the ridicule or an actual physical beating in this in this tragic case. Uh, we mentioned, or you mentioned earlier, the uh, the New Zealand UFO sighting, in which again the uh, the witnesses uh, were were jumped on and um, they tried to explain it away, saying it was squid boat lights. This is an interesting uh, case because, as you point out in the book, it's not one of the most dramatic. Uh, UFO sightings necessarily, uh, but it remains one of the best documented. Well, it is because of the film footage that was captured and was entirely unexpected. In fact, um, J. Allen Hynek um, said the case was, was very unusual and significant because of the film footage. And um, this was a case where a UFO had uh, been seen um, by pilots and, and other people uh, over New Zealand, and a film crew was sent up in a plane um, basically just to recreate the experience for a documentary. Nobody was actually expecting to come face-to-face with a UFO. And while they were uh, up in the sky um, trying to do this recreation, they actually had uh, a real sighting of, uh, of a mystery light and was captured on film. And uh, there was a little bit of um, anxiety among the crew because there there had been a recent case where uh, a, a pilot had disappeared, a pilot and his craft had disappeared after allegedly seeing something uh, unexplained in the sky. And so everybody's nerves were quite on edge. But um, the fellow who was doing the filming, a man by the name of David Crockett, uh, this really changed him. And, um, you know, he's got his camera there. He's, he's filming this um, uh, thing off, off the, the plane that they're seeing. And not, hardly belie- he's hardly believing what he was seeing. And um, then to be met with, uh, oh, dismissal, um, 
these ridiculous explanations, uh, he, he almost became a missionary after that uh, to, to get his film footage out there and to, you know, spread the gospel, so to speak, that um, these are, are real events. There is hard evidence. It can't be uh, just dismissed. Bruce Maccabee looked at the footage and, and declared it to be uh, legitimate. But um, He's an optical physicist, uh. He is, yes, and uh, he had worked for the Navy. I think uh, Bruce is retired now, but uh, Bruce was often called as um, an expert to examine photographs and film footage. And so that's how uh, David Crockett's life was changed. And, uh, you know, like anyone with a a missionary sort of goal like that, you're going to find uh, some people who will believe you and a lot who won't. Uh, but uh, because of the film footage that was captured, this remains uh, one of the more significant cases on record, even though it's not one of the most famous. Uh, the Chicago O'Hare UFO incident of 2006 uh, is in the book, and here there's lots of denial going on here. We, I believe it was uh, over Concourse C, which would, I think it was the United Airlines um, concourse, if I'm not mistaken, this sighting. And United Airlines, lots of denial coming them out after the fact and so forth. Even though I remember this story, it ran in the Chicago Tribune. I spoke to the, um, the reporter, uh, whose name escapes me for, I, we did a TV episode on the O'Hare UFO episode and the online edition of that story uh, was the most popular news story in Trib history, the online version. Uh, but here we have a, um, a, a UFO enthusiast and a trained field observer who sees, sees this remarkable event, and of course then the denials start coming in. Tell me about that. Well, the, um, the primary witness um, was uh, actually a, a, a field investigator for MUFON, and so she had had training in um, what to look for in uh, sighting cases and interviewing witnesses. And she's looking out her uh, office window one day. Um, this was, uh, as you mentioned, in 2006. And uh, she sees an object that uh, looks to her like a UFO. It doesn't have any wings. Um, and um, it's uh, moving off in... Uh, uh, a southeasterly direction uh, toward uh, U.S. cellular field. And uh, she knows it's not an airplane. So immediately, because of her background, she's considering this must be a UFO. And she calls to one of her colleagues to come over to the window uh, and look at it. Um, and this is another thing that uh, is uh, a common theme in um, these cases where there might be multiple witnesses who see it and agree on what they see uh, at the time, but then there's denial later. It's like, oh, well, you thought it was a UFO, but I don't know what it was, or I didn't see that. Um, and uh, that's, that's really what happened to her. And uh, so she did a little bit of triangulation on it. She had about a 30-second total sighting time on this and um, discovered, you know, that, you know, in her estimation, it, it was, uh, genuinely an unexplained object that she saw. But her colleague said she didn't believe in UFOs, and so therefore it couldn't be that. And uh, there are a lot of people who just have this kind of 
blind, shuttered, um, I don't believe in that stuff, so therefore no matter what I see, it can't be that. And this is also very frustrating to eyewitnesses because then the person that they're looking to for corroboration isn't backing them up. I uh, I should clarify. I'm I'm an error. Uh, the this was not the o- the O'Hare UFO incident. That was in November of 2006. This was in what you're describing was in August 2006. This is a separate incident entirely. My apologies. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I thought you were talking about um, you know that that particular case. No, but, but same same year within months and another uh, another sighting in Chicago. Uh, we're coming up on a break, but I want to I want to get into the uh, the uh, the next section, which is the uh, um, mystery lights and craft. And there's a an interesting uh, illustration here by one of the witnesses, and um, Billy Pekka uh, draws this craft that uh, that he saw in September of 1976. Uh, you know, looks like your typical, you know, flying UFO, domed on top, flat on the bottom, uh, the part in the middle rotates and so forth. Tell me about, about this sighting. We'll get it started now and then we'll, uh, then I'll have to jump in and we'll continue after the break. But tell me about the Billy Pekka illustration. Well, this took place late, uh, one night in uh, September 1976 and Billy was, um, watching TV. And he noticed that the TV, you know, the TV goes on the fritz and all the appliances go on the fritz. It's like there's some big electrical outage going on. And and this often is a precursor to a sighting as well, especially if it's a visible craft. And uh, so he goes outside uh, and sees this very strange um, craft up close uh, over uh, over his farm. All right, we'll pick it up on the other side. We'll uh, talk about the Billy Pekka sighting. And uh, we'll continue our conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, co-author along with Michael Bryan of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Again, the book, The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, co-author Michael Bryan, a.k.a. The Travel Psychologist. We were talking about uh, the Michael uh, Pekka, or sorry, Billy Vincent Pekka uh, sighting. And uh, this is outside of, a, I guess, a trailer house on the edge of town in Calusa, California in uh, 1976. Quite an interesting illustration here. You were describing that uh, earlier. And um, he, ta- he talked about how the experience really interfered in his life. A lo- I mean, a lot. It, it, tell me about that. Well, I did want to mention also about the appearance of the craft because he, he talks about how it looks like there are rope-like cables that dangle down. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, there are many descriptions that, that people give where they're seeing something that looks dome-shaped or saucer-shaped uh, round, and they see protrusions issue from the side, like ropes or cables or pincers, and uh, start to come down to the ground. And he saw this as well. Now... Um, he went and stood, uh, in all there were three craft, 
that he saw, but the main one, uh, he stood directly under it. He said for a good six minutes, and he looked up inside of it, and he said it seemed to have uh, like this ceramic uh, kind of finish to it. Uh, there were sort of silver and white and purplish kind of light, uh, and he uh, he could see deep inside the craft, but he couldn't see any beings in it, but he did sense that there was um, an intelligence to it. And um, the only thing that he could think of was, uh, oh, my gosh, uh, I need to protect myself and my family. And, of course, uh, people often have the irrational thought that if, if they have a rifle or a gun, for example, that if they go in and get it, they're going to have some sort of protection when, um, you know, that's not going to be any protection against the, this at all. But this craft starts to back off, and it starts to head over to uh, neighboring properties. And so he rouses his wife and his daughter, and he says, we've got to get out of here. And uh, they jump in their pickup truck, and they go to a neighbor's house and report what they've seen. And they're worried about uh, the one neighbor in particular that this uh, craft uh, seemed to have another interest in. And uh, uh, interestingly, uh, a a couple of the people that they uh, contact uh, don't seem to be all that disturbed by it. The husband had been a pilot, had seen a lot of unusual things. Uh, they'd, uh, the husband and wife had slept through this whole experience, and the wife said, oh, well, we would have liked to have seen that, too. They weren't uh, at all alarmed by it. Hmm. And I mentioned earlier but, about, oh, sorry, go ahead, yes. Well, uh, Billy found, uh, like a, a lot of others, um, that he was uh, ridiculed for this. Now, the case was... Um, investigated quite thoroughly uh, by APRO. Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO. Right, the Lorenzans, they're both gone now, and APRO no longer exists. But they did an extensive investigation. They sent people to interview Billy. He had nightmares, repeating nightmares. Um, The the dreams would always start where uh, he saw the craft and ended where it just uh, disappeared in the sky. Uh, And there's this sense of vulnerability um, and uh, he was advised to undergo hypnosis, uh, but he was really frightened to do uh, do that, and so uh, so he didn't. But um, it it is one of the more extraordinary cases on the record. The official um, uh, there was a, a big blackout in in the whole general area that was explained away naturally. But uh, Billy really thought that it was the presence of the UFOs that had. Um, caused the blackout because he said as soon as as they were out out of uh, the vicinity, all of his appliances came back on. And this is something that we find with um, many cases as well, that cars fail, appliances, equipment fail, and then as soon as the craft is out of the area, everything is uh, back uh, normal and running again. Right. Officials said there was um, a, a disturbance at a substation uh, northeast of L.A. or something. That's how they explained it away. Uh, the other interesting aspect of the book is where we were talking about, you know, the why me factor and, and why I've always wondered this. You know, I've never seen a UFO, uh, and then there I know people that, that see them almost on a monthly basis. Uh, it's almost as if they choose who they'll reveal themselves to. And there's the case of Norma Jean Conroy, uh, who is a flight attendant, 
And it seems as if this UFO decided to reveal itself to her and her husband, but no one else. This is, uh, this took place back in 1979 while she was working for United Airlines. Yes, and it was in Hawaii, and uh, she and her husband were uh, driving back home. They had separate cars. They'd been out. Uh, they were in separate vehicles. They were driving back home, and um, she notices these um, strange lights overhead, and uh, they're very low. She knows it's not a plane. Uh, for one thing, it's it's not on the flight paths um, that she's familiar with. The, the, this Whatever it is is flying way too low for uh, a commercial aircraft. And so she stops her car and gets out to look at it, and her husband uh, stops his car and uh, looks at it too, and they see this huge thing uh, going overhead. And it's, it's also traveling very, um, very slow, which is would have been uncharacteristic for an airplane as well. So none of the things lined up to explain it away as, as a commercial aircraft. And they did sort of go through their minds, you know, a checklist. Well, maybe it's a helicopter. No, it's not a helicopter. And uh, it it just goes slowly over and um, has sort of a humming sound to it. Uh, there seems to be an intelligence behind it, and it heads out towards sea, toward one of the other islands. I've got to jump in here, Rosemary. Um, we're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back, and we'll continue on with this story of the flight attendant and her husband. I'm back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, co-author of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about this uh, flight attendant and her husband. Uh, back in the late 70s, she was working with United Airlines at the time. They saw this huge craft, slow-moving craft. And uh, you just pick it up from where we left off, Rosemary. Well, it does uh, start to pass over, and then uh, it did some strange aerial maneuvers. Um, another common characteristic we find in these cases where people say they see lights and craft do things that a known craft can't do. And this thing made a 180-degree turn and, and came back and um, made some other unusual movements and then uh, passed over and uh, went out toward uh, Molokai and disappeared in the clouds. Now, um other people, this wasn't night, but nonetheless, nobody, here's two people uh, who have stopped by the road and they're looking up in the sky, uh, obviously puzzled by something. Does anybody stop and want to know what's going on? No. Uh, and this also is a characteristic we find that others seem to be very uninterested in finding out what might be going on, uh, even when they're told to look up. Uh, and so they actually, uh, when they when they get home, she calls one of their friends who's an Air Force pilot and describes what they'd seen and is there any possible explanation for it, and he doesn't have one. Uh, and it isn't in the news. If, if anybody, she is kind of mystified how no one else could have uh, missed this. Surely some of the people in the houses um, that this thing passed over might have observed it as well. Nobody seems to have reported it because it never landed in the media. And so uh, witnesses in this case often start second-guessing themselves. You know, uh, did, did I have a real experience? Uh, what really happened? If no one else saw it, no one else reported it, 
um, then why did I have this experience? And I do think that uh, people have different, um, I, I guess you would call it psychic antenna, to unexplained phenomena and extraordinary phenomena and alternate realities. And there are individuals, as you mentioned, Richard, that have uh, even frequent sightings and encounters, and other people might even go their whole lives having none or maybe even one. And it, it seems that they're, they're just tuned into what I would say might be a different vibrational frequency where... Um, they experience these things which I believe are around us all the time. In the alien uh, encounters section, there's a case of three sisters. Again, we go to California uh, and uh, missing time, about an hour and a half. They're on their way. I believe they were coming from their grandparents' place, tra- traveling back, three sisters, back to their parents' home, a trip that should have taken them, was it an hour and a half, and they were gone for four hours or something. So they, or they have this big chunk of missing time. That's the point. Uh, and, uh, of course, their father doesn't believe them, believes that they were out partying somewhere. Anyway, they eventually get none other than Alan Hynek, J. Alan Hynek involved. Tell me about this case. Uh, this was a particularly terrifying case for the, the primary witness who underwent the um, regression that I mentioned a little earlier. Um and uh, what happened with the, the three sisters was um, that there there was really only one way to get home, and they had to go over a certain road and a certain bridge, and um, they wind up with these four hours of missing time, and, and their father doesn't believe them. They even get a map out um, to determine that um, there's no way they could have gotten lost and meandered around. They, they wound up... Um, going over, they suddenly realized that they were going over the same bit of road territory that they had gone over before and four hours uh, had gone missing. And so the one sister was, um, her name was Judy, uh, was, was pretty rattled by this and she wanted to try and get to the bottom of it and someone recommended that she uh, contact uh, J. Allen Hynek and uh, he in turn put her in touch with other investigators. Um, he suggested that uh, she thought maybe she had been through a time warp. One of her friends said, oh, you you had like sort of a time slip, and, and Hynek didn't think so. He thought that maybe an abduction had taken place. And so she undergoes this regression and um, has to relive uh, a really horrifying experience where uh, she finds herself um, out of the car and uh, aboard some sort of craft, and she's undressed on this uh, what appears to be like a stainless steel table with a sheet over her, just like a medical examining room. And there are other people in the room, other humans, including um, a woman, a young woman, who seems to know who she is because she addresses her by name. And so there are these beings coming in and out. Uh, they have masks over their faces. Um, they're not very tall. They're only about five foot six. But then this being comes in that absolutely terrifies her, and she refers to him as the witch doctor, and he's quite tall. Um, he's uh, six to seven feet tall. He has this bulbous, almost insect-like head, not a praying mantis, but um, kind of an insect-like head, uh, and 
it, she said it was like you could see all the veins in him and they were red. You know, it's his skin is almost like translucent and there's um, something very evil and sinister about him. And she panics when she sees this being and, and he approaches her. And this other young woman who's lying uh, on a table next to her in the same room says, oh, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, Judy, don't worry. And um, so she is subjected to, you know, some sort of examination, uh, and uh, not only by the witch doctor, by by these other beings. And this witch doctor entity seems to be the entity in charge. Uh, and that's often the case that we find uh, in these shipboard uh, recounts where, there is a different-looking being who seems seems to be in charge. Um, and she said she felt like a guinea pig, like a lab rat. And this is another theme for uh, these kinds of encounters. People say that they're treated like animals, uh, like we might put a, a, a rat on a, a lab table and do some sort of examining lower life form. Uh, she doesn't, uh, she can't communicate um, and, and other people say they can't communicate with these beings. There's telepathic communication going on, and they're getting impressions from the beings, but they're not getting any information. It's just like they are literally uh, a lab rat. And this experience for her was so terrifying that when she was undergoing the regression, uh, she really had to be brought out of it because it, it was just too emotionally stressful for her. And um, in attempting to revisit the experience for more information, she even asked to skip over that part because uh, she just uh, could not deal with the terror uh, of, of this um, experience and this horrible being that she called the witch doctor. Well, her two sisters, oh, so what happens then is that when the experience is over, uh, the smaller beings take her back and suddenly she's back in her car and she said they just sort of shoot her into the car uh, and she's back behind the steering wheel and she sits there in a daze for quite a while and then uh, at some point her other two sisters uh, reappear in the car and uh, her two uh, sisters were not interested in uh, delving into their experiences they had uh, you know the more common reaction of I don't want to know because if I do know then I might not be able to handle it you mentioned uh, these insectoid-looking uh, creatures, and the these aliens that look like insect, insects or praying mantises often uh, appear in these abduction account, uh, accounts. Um, there is one in the book particularly harrowing. I mean, the one you just discussed was was most frightening. But there's a, a gentleman in London. This is going back, I think, 2001. Uh, and again, the classic sort of praying mantis overseer in this abduction account. Tell me about that. This was a, a series of abductions that went on for a number of years. And uh, Jim contacted me some years ago and and um, told me his account. He contacted other researchers as well. He did not give out his last name. And um, the experiences involved mostly these horrific praying mantis beings and then also some smaller beings that seemed to be their sidekicks which he described as cloaked and sort of beetle-like and uh, uh, here again it's the why me factor now uh, Jim said that he had had some experiences earlier in life and we often find this in the background of experiencers that 
there are um, indications that, that they've had earlier encounters. But at any rate, the primary experiences start in 2001, and he's living on the outskirts of London, and he wakes up uh, in the middle of the night to find this, uh, what appears to be a praying mantis-looking being in this little beetle-like thing uh, by the side of his bed, and he thinks he's dreaming. Uh, and, you know, he shuts his eyes and opens them, and then he realizes he's not dreaming. And uh, this experience then initiates periodic visitations from, uh, from these beings. Uh, sometimes it's a little cloaked being who comes by itself, and sometimes it's praying mantis. And uh, they mess around with him. They get inside uh, of his head. Um, he has a strange physical effects. He passes out. He wakes up bruised and like he's been run over by a truck. Uh, he starts to believe that he's been abducted, but he has, um, you know, no recollection of, of what's going on. And um, it, it gives him literally all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And they're quite horrific. Uh, he sees these things come through walls. Uh, they're very sinister. Um, they have needle-like instruments, the praying mantis does. And uh, they go on and off for years. And sometimes he gets uh, a little bit of relief for a while, and then the experiences start up again, and he's powerless uh, to stop them. And he begins to have a more engagement with them. And, and uh, he describes one set of experiences where uh, he was shown... Uh, he was taken aboard uh, like a craft and then shown the planet Earth and places on the planet and things that were going on and describes in some detail what he says is an underground facility in the U.S. where there are thousands of aliens, uh, including these praying mantis-like beings, and they're hostile, they're malevolent, they have uh, no good intentions toward, the, toward uh, human beings. And uh, so he's given like uh, this information uh, and even previews of, of uh, you know, what might happen uh, in, in times to come. Uh, but they're not real forth, like other beings in other experiences, they're not real forthcoming about what their agendas are, who they are. It's like, we'll get from you what we want, uh, but we're not going to tell you anything uh, other than what exactly we want you to know. And so finally... Um, he arrived after years of these traumatic experiences. Uh, he begins to notice that when he spends more time inside of London, um, it seems to put up a barrier against these beings. Uh, and that if he's outside in a more rural area, they seem to have access to him, but if he's in a big noisy city uh, where the energy is a lot different, he seems to have some protection to him. And the last any of us heard from uh, Jim was around 2008, where he said he had moved to the city. Uh, he was still suffering from what he said was post-traumatic stress, but he wasn't being bothered anymore. Now, that may have been the case that he, he found some way to sort of block the access, but it could also be the case that the beings were done with him. We have so many accounts from abductees who say, uh, you know, the encounters went on as long as they wanted them to, and when they were done with me, they stopped. Right, and in other cases, uh, it seems to be almost generational. Rosemary, we are out of time. I want to point out, though, before we go, 
that at the end of the book, there's an appendix that includes an interview that Michael Bryan did, your co-author, with the late, great J. Allen Hynek, so people can look for that. And uh, how do they get a hold of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness? It is available on Amazon and in ebook on Kindle, Nook, iBooks, and Kobo. Well, congratulations to both you and Michael, and uh, thank you for hanging out with me for another hour, Rosemary. Always a pleasure. And thank you, Richard. You stay warm now. (laughs) I'll do my best. Out to shovel the driveway yet again. Rosemary Ellen Guiley back next week with a brand new program. Thank you to uh, Ian Robertson. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.